Hi, this is Joe. I'm 49 years old. I live in San Diego, and I converted to Judaism last year. I love listening to Unorthodox, and I've particularly enjoyed and appreciated the two conversion episodes as someone who's been Jewish adjacent for almost three decades, but who only recently took the plunge, in my case literally, into the Pacific Ocean. expand on a thread that I've heard in some of the unorthodox conversion stories. I wanted to talk about talking with your family about converting. My primary qualification for talking to you about this is that I'm a complete failure at talking to my own family about becoming a Jew. My only partially successful conversation about converting was with my wife. I told her of my intentions as we were flying back from a vacation in Europe, a trip which I now jokingly refer to as our tragical history tour. We first went to Italy, we went to the Ukraine and Poland, where my wife's Bubby and Zadie grew up, and where many of their family were killed. I can't say exactly what clicked in me, I think it was confronting the complete decimation of once vibrant Jewish communities and my own personal connection to people who had experienced this destruction firsthand. It somehow sparked in me a desire to try and reclaim and to try and make sure my kids understood where they came from. But it was more than that too. It was also a desire to fill a void in my own life, a feeling of incompleteness, despite being blessed with an incredible family, meaningful work, and living in a beautiful place. After our trip, I enrolled in an intro to Judaism class at the temple that we'd been attending, though we'd never joined. I threw myself into the learning. I read all the required books. I wrote essays. I learned about how to read Hebrew, and I learned about how to chant. I met with the rabbi every couple weeks. I began to learn how to daven. I never mentioned any of this to my kids, who at the time were 10 and 13. They knew I was taking some sort of class at the temple, but I didn't discuss with them my intentions. It was only a week or so before my conversion that a rabbi asked me whether I'd talked about converting with my kids. I think she was a bit shocked that I said I had not. I stumbled to answer. I'm sure I told her that I felt converting was, for me, a very personal thing, not something I could well articulate, not something I myself necessarily fully understood, so much as felt, and certainly not something I felt compelled or obligated to tell others about. Ultimately, I did tell my kids, and they and my wife joined me as I immersed myself in the cold Pacific, and they were by my side as I held the Torah in my arms for the first time and committed to Judaism and the Jewish people. But I have many more examples of my failure to communicate. I still have not told my mom that I converted, though I speak daily with her, and though we even invited her to our son's bar mitzvah. I'm sure she must have some clue. Clearly, I'm seeking to avoid conflict. But why do I assume there'll be conflict? For some of the reasons that prior conversion episode contributors have offered, such as fearing irreparable damage to this most basic relationship. I just need to figure out what I want to say and have the courage to say it. But here's my biggest failure to communicate. I never mentioned any of this to my dad, who died six months ago after I'd converted. I think of him every day as I recite the cottage. I think always and only of him. I'll never again have the opportunity to be honest and true with him about my feelings or to share with him why I find being Jewish meaningful. I love my father, though we didn't always agree. In the end, I wasn't honest with him about this most essential thing. In my weaker moments, I feel some perverse relief that I avoided conflict. And in my stronger moments, I feel profound regret. So, unorthodox listeners who may find themselves in a situation like me, please be stronger than me. Be true to yourselves. Please find the courage to talk to those closest with you about the things that are most important to you.
I'm Mark Oppenheimer, and this is Unorthodox. Every year, we make a conversion episode in honor of the Jewish holiday of Shavuot, or as some people say with the Yiddish pronunciation, Shavuos. And this year, Shavuos falls on May 29th. It has kind of become the holiday of converts. It's when we read the book of Ruth, who is the Bible's most famous convert, and it's also kind of when a lot of people who are on an academic calendar finish up their conversion studies. So it's May, you go to the mikvah, the ritual bath, you dunk a few times, you pass the exam given by your Beit Din, your panel of rabbis, and you become a Jew. So for this holiday, we interview all kinds of converts about why they want to be Jews. I mean, who would want to be Jewish? There are all sorts of crazy rules about what you can eat and not eat, what you can wear and not wear, what you can do on Saturday and not do on Saturday. There are anti-Semites spreading conspiracy theories about us. I mean, let's face it, it's a lot easier not to be Jewish, that's for sure. And yet, every year, all over the world, thousands of people are trying to opt in. There are people who want to become Jews, who want to join this tribe. And those are the stories we bring you. This year, my co-host Stephanie Butnick goes back to Duke University, where she interviews members of her sorority. Not her sorority little sister, to use the Greek lingo, but her little little sister and her little 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 sister, both of whom, it turns out, are converting to Judaism. My co-host Liel Leibowitz talks with David Ben Moshe, an African-American who converted with an Orthodox rabbinic court, only to move to Israel and find that his conversion was not accepted. And we bring you the remarkable story of V, a Vietnamese-American woman in California dying of a rare cancer who had one wish, that she would die as a Jew. But first, to start off, I have the story of Lynn Hyde, a woman I met in Pittsburgh while I was researching the aftermath of the synagogue shooting in 2018. Now, you'll listen to her story, and it will pretty quickly become clear that she was going to end up a Jew no matter what. I mean, she had a Jewish soul to begin with. But she was helped along in her decision by the horrible attack on the Tree of Life Synagogue about a year and a half ago. So I was raised as a Protestant, um, but of no particular denomination. We went to a Christian church. I feel like this is going to make people groan, (laughs) but um, I read a lot of Holocaust books and literature as a kid. So I read The Diary of Anne Frank in fourth grade. And so I knew about Jews existing, even though the only Jews in my school, I think, were teachers. But I definitely knew about Judaism, and I think as a kid, my vein was from learning about the Holocaust. Number the Stars, The Devil's Arithmetic, Jacob's Ladder, I read Schindler's List. I'm sure there's more, those are the ones that stand out, book after book after book. But I think The Diary of Anne Frank was my way in because I identified with her. When I was younger and living in New York and dating, I used to joke that I wanted to marry a Jewish man because then I would get all of the holidays. And I had a friend who always thought, someday you will be married to a Jewish guy. And I met Jeremy, he was Jewish, and he said it wasn't a big deal, but it was. And I don't actually think that he maybe realized what a big deal it was until we got further into it. I think for him it was just, yeah, this is what I am, and 
I think he played it off as though he didn't really care, but it was the when we first met, it was right before the High Holy Days, and he was going home for Rosh Hashanah, and I felt like, well, I should understand this more. Like, I knew the holidays existed, but I didn't know a lot about them, and I wanted to understand better. I got really into it, and we broke up for a little bit. We got back together in March and very early on had a conversation where he had said, well, if I ever had kids, if we ever had kids, I would want them to be Jewish. And I said, yeah, sure, that's no problem. And as later, it like, it just kind of fell out of my mouth. It's like, yeah, that's no problem. I This is what I always thought I'd do. And then I started to really think about it. And what did that mean? And what did that mean for me as someone who was not Jewish, who didn't grow up with that background? We started actually from there going to services at Temple Sinai regularly. And the other thing that we had started doing over the summer, I casually one day was like, what if we did Shabbat this Friday? So at this point, Lynn and her husband are doing Friday night dinners. They're going to synagogue on Saturdays. They're living a kind of Jewy lifestyle, but she has no plans to become a Jew. And things might have stayed that way for a while, if not for the attack on the Tree of Life Synagogue, October 27th, 2018. We were not at services. We typically go Friday nights. And we had been at services the night before. And the sirens is mostly what I remember. Mercy Hospital is four blocks from here. And Jeremy was helping me edit something I was working on. And both of us noticed that, gosh, it's a lot of sirens. It's a busy area. Uh, There's a lot of traffic here. So we thought maybe there was a car accident or something. And then the phone started blowing up. And both of us tend to put our phones aside on Shabbat. So his mother tried to call him and couldn't get him. And then she tried me. And I think it came up on my laptop. And I was like, why is your mother calling me? And then I picked up, I got my phone and had text messages from my mother, from friends saying something happened in Squirrel Hill. Are you safe? And so we called his mom back and turned on the TV and watched more local news than I have ever in my adult life watched. And just kind of sat here in the living room waiting, waiting for more information. And there just wasn't. It just kept cutting back to the scene in in Squirrel Hill. And it was a rainy, dreary day. And then the next day, we went to the memorial service at Soldiers and Sailors. And I think it was at that point still so raw that we still were trying to figure out how to process it. And both of us had the, you don't want to insert yourself into someone else's tragedy, but I think we both had this sense of like, you know, he could have gone anywhere. Like he was just looking for a synagogue. And if he, if it had been the night before at Temple Sinai, we would have been sitting there. I'm guessing we're not the only people who have here who have had those thoughts. I feel like that was the first moment that I was able to articulate my own realization that if he had come in, where I was, I would have been there. 
And I'm pretty certain he wouldn't have said, okay, if you're the non-Jewish spouse or partner of someone sitting in the room, raise your hand and, you know, go about your business. Like I would have been there and I would have been, it, it would have affected me too. Um, and that realization was the moment. And I think maybe Rabbi Gibson said, like, what does it feel like to realize that your partner could be a target and therefore you could be a target too? And I think that conversation was when I really realized that, you know, this is my community too. Some anti-Semite with a gun isn't going to care whether or not I did the paperwork, he's not going to know what any of that is. So why am I so hesitant to do the paperwork? This is my community. And it is the community that I would go to if something terrible happened to my husband. If something horrible happened in our lives, it is part of my support system. So why wouldn't I officially stand with this community? Lynn is studying for her conversion. Things are moving along. And then COVID-19 happens. Quarantine. Now remember, to become a Jew, the typical thing is to go before a court of several rabbis who interview you and make sure that you've studied. And then when you've passed their examination, you go to the mikveh, the ritual bath, and you immerse. The reform movement doesn't require the immersion, but it's a pretty special thing, and and people like doing it. They like going into that water and then coming out as, as somebody new or some would say, as their true self. So in March, as Lynn was approaching the date of her conversion, she began keeping an audio diary for us. Today is Tuesday, March 24th. I am three days away from my Dean and a little over a week into coronavirus quarantine. My final pre-conversion meeting with my rabbi was on March 12th, which was less than two weeks ago, but feels like a lifetime ago. In that meeting, we were still operating under the assumption that we'd be able to convene the Beit Dean in person. The bigger question was whether it would be safe to do the mikveh. Eight of us are scheduled to go before the Beit Dean on Friday, and even two weeks ago, there were concerns that it might not be safe to go to the mikveh one right after another, especially if one of us is sick or getting sick. In this short time, it seems like everything has changed. On Friday morning, my bait dean will convene via Zoom. The mikveh is on hold until it's safe, and right now no one knows when that'll be. To say this isn't exactly how I'd expected my conversion to go would be an understatement. And yet, I am grateful to be able to move forward with the help of technology. I'm glad I don't have to wait for the pandemic to pass altogether, and I am preemptively trying to practice patience about the mikveh It will happen in due time, just on a different schedule than I originally anticipated. And probably any Jew by choice could tell you that conversion to Judaism has never been an endeavor for the impatient. And then a few days later, we heard from Lynn again. Today's the 27th. Your your immersion in the ritual bath in the mikvah was supposed to be three days from now on Monday the 30th. Is that going to happen? It is not. So what does that mean for the whole process? I think for it, so it, it depends on who you ask. Um, I think for me, it just means a little bit more limbo for a while. 
uh, which I realize is not a Jewish phrase, but, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I think I will be in this state of Jewish limbo for a little bit, where if presuming the, the rabbis say, yep, you're in, I will wait until it is safe. And that is, we don't know when that'll be. So it'll happen when it happens. And in the meantime, I will be not quite Jewish yet. A, a good friend of mine is also going before the big dean today. So she and I are going to, uh, we're going to have a, a video chat after she's done, uh, after lunch. And then I'm going to bake challah and <laughs> uh, get ready for Shabbat. And then we got one final message from Lynn. Hi, Unorthodox. It's Lynn Hyde checking in with a conversion diary update on April 8th, 2020, era of Pesach. I was approved by the Beit Dean almost two weeks ago, and as expected, my immersion continues to be delayed by the COVID pandemic. Until I immerse, the conversion is not complete, so being truly official is delayed. Since the fall, I've been anticipating this Pesach as the first holiday that I would be celebrating as a Jew, and I'm not quite there yet. On its face, I suppose that's disappointing. However, I realize that I have a lifetime of Jewish holidays ahead of me to be official. For the time being, in the spirit of the holiday, I'm focused on all of the reasons that my little family is so very lucky. We are healthy, Dayenu. Our family and friends are healthy, Dayenu. Social distancing is giving us the opportunity to decide what is meaningful to us as a couple, Dayenu. Maybe I'll be official by Shavuot, maybe not. I think I'm through with setting expectations on a timeline right now. What I do know is that I will be official eventually. And hopefully when that day arrives, I'll be able to hug all of the friends and family who have supported me on this journey. As of this Shavuos, Lynn still has not dumped. But you know, it ain't easy being a Jew, and it's sure not easy becoming one. Butnick here. When I was in college, I was in a sorority, Kappa Kappa Gamma. When I joined Kappa, I got assigned to a family, which included one member from each successive class. A big, a big, big, a big, 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 you get the idea. A lot of people might say they had the best damn Kappa fam, but mine really was. I've stayed in touch with these amazing women, and I'm excited to bring you a special conversation with two dear friends, my little, little, and my little, little, little. Today I am here with my Kappa Little Little and my Little Little Little, which is a sentence I never thought I would say after graduation, but I'm here with Danny Potter and Consuelo Hernandez. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having us. So this is like a mini family reunion, a mini Kappa reunion, a mini Duke reunion, but this is also the conversion episode. And I've asked you to come on and join me because the two of you are both converting to Judaism. We are. We are. By some miracle. I want to say like, 
when I heard this, I was surprised. And then I thought that maybe I had been running like the longest game of all, which was like when I met you 10 years ago, was I trying to convert you? I don't think so. But here we are. I started thinking about this the other day. And I remember you telling me right after I was accepted into the sorority, you said that you were trying to increase the diversity in the sorority. But now I think you might have had a secret different agenda. I did feel like by the time I got to be a senior, I was really proud that we had Jews in the double digits, which for Kappa Kappa Gamma at like a semi-Southern school felt like a big win. But beyond that, I swear I had like no other intentions. You definitely were not trying to convert me at the time. I remember I took you to church on campus because you were writing an article about religious life on campus that I just thought was so totally cool. And it was actually five years ago when I was with all of my year sorority sisters, where my college roommate, Liz, who was one of the Jewish members of the sorority, and I sort of announced, I met this guy, he's amazing, I'm going to convert to Judaism for him and get married. And she burst out laughing and was like, Danny, what do you mean? You're the most religious person I know, and you're Catholic. And it, sometimes it takes the people closest to you to kind of point things out about yourself. And I, it was the first time where I, even though I was a practicing Catholic my entire life and I loved it and I engaged with it, where I thought about it as anything more a part of my identity than just like a fun hobby that I did on the side and, and really enjoyed and took a lot from. So it wasn't me. It wasn't sisterhood that did it for you guys. So... <laughs> I'm not mad, though. I think for me, a lot of it had to do with growing up in Boca Raton. So I got a lot of exposure to the religion early on. I grew up in Venezuela. I was born there. Then I moved to the U.S. when I was six. And my parents just put me in Boca Raton and put me in school. And every single person was Jewish. And I came home crying every day during the holidays because I thought I was this weirdo who celebrated Christmas while everyone was painting dreidels and getting ready for Hanukkah. So it's been a little bit of a theme throughout my life. And so I was pretty comfortable with the religion, but I'd like to give you credit. But it is funny because I feel like you did have that South Florida literacy where like you had been to bat mitzvahs, you knew about it. Danny, you went to mass. Like that was so rare for people our age. It's so interesting to me that you both have sort of come here on this journey, not not together, obviously, but you guys have parallel journeys that I think have brought you two closer together as well, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. It's been honestly such a blessing. And we talk about this a lot. And that's not a word I use often, but that just someone I'm so close with, we're going through these parallel journeys for sure. We celebrated um, Yom Kippur together last year. Why don't you walk me through sort of the point at which you realized this was something that you were open to? And then also sort of like what that conversion process has been like. When I started dating John, he was very upfront very early on that he was only going to marry a Jewish person. I was not sort of looking for marriage at the time and then fell in love. And then you look up and you realize, well, he'd been really upfront about it the whole time. And that was sort of when I came to terms a little bit with what my relationship with my religion was. And I continued to go to mass all through college in my adult life. But I think the things that I really responded to about it, the ritual, it's kind of time away from your phone, being part of a community, the music, frankly, the holidays, the decorating, the getting together with family were all things that were actually enhanced in Judaism. Like those things that I really valued out of the religion from the Catholic side of things were things that Judaism really put at the center. There is a holiday every other week 
And this Shavuot is about dairy and roses. I was, we were reading all about it this last weekend, like mac and cheese and flowers everywhere. Like there couldn't be a better holiday for me. And I thought Sukkot was my favorite one. But I have been converting uh, with Rabbi David Kalb at the Jewish Learning Center in New York. Um, and I'm doing a modern Orthodox conversion. I love it. I love, love, love everything about it. Consuelo, will you tell us a little bit about your journey? Sure. So I want to say it's the complete opposite of Danny's, though there are a lot of similarities. But I actually did not get along with Catholicism at all. I was also raised Catholic, and my family's very Hispanic Catholic, so it's very cultural. But I just never liked the religion. I never connected with it. I always felt that it was very negative in the terms of like sinners and hell and very polarizing in that sense. And for me, the second I was done with confirmation, I was kind of out. I don't think I ever went back to mass outside of a wedding or a funeral. So it was kind of this gap spiritually for me. And I didn't think about addressing it actively until I met Noah. And for us, it wasn't really a will you convert. It was more when will I convert because we had been friends for a long time. In our friendship, we had discussed it. We had talked about how if I was dating someone that was Jewish, I would convert. And it was a casual conversation when it first got brought up. And then we started dating several years later. And it was probably six months into our relationship the first time he asked me to convert. And I was like, whoa, that's a little too soon, buddy. (laughs) But then probably, so we've been dating for three years now. And a year ago, I started the process. And I was talking to a friend of mine. And his wife had recently converted. and. She was just talking to me about how amazing the process was, about how she also never really connected to her Christian roots. And that really inspired me. And so I decided to go ahead and do it. So I started researching and I was trying to figure out like where in Judaism would I want to fall. And I talked to his parents about it and they're conservative, but they didn't feel that I needed to be, which was really nice. Not that I was just doing it for his parents, but (laughs) I mean, obviously there's a family role there. And I just started stalking all of the rabbis of New York City, essentially, trying to figure out who can I relate to. And for me, that was really important. I wanted to be authentic in the process because I felt like I had lied my way through Catholic school. And so I've started the process with Rabbi Josh Stanton from East End Temple. And he's just been a really, really amazing person to just connect with and get to know. You're on your way to the Beit Din at this point, right? I finished the classes through the Union for Reform Judaism in March. And now I'm writing my spiritual autobiography, which I'll present to the Beit Din once I'm done, which will be probably within the next month. Because of quarantine, it'll happen over Zoom. And then I'll have to do the mikvah on my own. And it has to be in a body of water. I'm going to receive the instructions after the beaten. And it's going to be in an ocean or a lake or a river or a stream of water also works. But there's specific instructions that I'll get into what counts. So have you thought about which body of water? I'm in Toronto now, quarantined. So it'll either be Lake Ontario, the very cold water, most likely. If the border opens up before I need to do my personal mikvah, then I will try to fly down to Florida to see my family and do it in warmer waters in the Atlantic. That's amazing. I mean, something I've always envied about people who who convert or who, you know, who make this choice First of all, make a choice, right, later in their lives when they have a little bit more agency and sort of understanding is that you really get to like grapple with these big issues and you get to think about them. And and the flip side of that to me is I always wonder if converts 
like start resenting their Jewish friends who like don't know as much as you know because you guys have gone through like Danny we were texting you were texting about like the Omer and I imagine a lot of people that you're friends with like don't necessarily know about the Omer is that something that's come up at all that tension it's funny I hosted thank you to your Haggadahs I hosted a Passover night for night two and I invited a bunch of my Jewish friends and they were jokingly calling me Rabbi Danny because I was pausing and giving long explanations to many points when I had joined their Passover Passovers in the past, and they hadn't expounded quite as much. So it might be annoying to them, but I love it. I love filling in the backstory to a lot of the reasoning behind this religion. I'm just so fascinated by people. I think why some of my affinity to religion has to do with it. It's an organization of people, and it's one that's worked for thousands of years. And this one is, you know, the longest organization of people. And it's worked and it's it's kept going and I found so much beautiful about it. You know, I think as we dive deep into the laws and how they apply to being an Orthodox observant Jew, it's really just more about creating a version of yourself that's able to be kind. Like at the core, it's like, okay, if you follow all of these rules, it's the perfect map to how to be a human, to fulfill all of the needs that you have biologically, spiritually, and therefore you will be free to be the kindest version of yourself. To answer your question, no, I don't resent them. I actually think it's a captive audience to talk about something that I always love talking about. So it's funny you say this too, because I feel like now whenever I have a question about Judaism, I go to Danny. <laughs> Rabbi Danny. <laughs> Rabbi Danny. One would think that I'd probably go to my Jewish friends, but I think you're 100% right that all of my Jewish friends know the top layer of Judaism. So I can get answers to like more straightforward questions about the holidays, things like that. But Danny knows all of the less celebrated holidays and all of the history behind them. So it's pretty amazing. You guys are both converting because of a partner. And I feel like a lot of the times that's sort of not like demeaned, but people are like, oh, of course, you just had to do it. But what I'm amazed by is that you guys really have profound understandings of not only what this means, but why you've come to this. The first time I met with Rabbi Josh, he asked me this question. In Reform Judaism, you don't have to convert to be part of the synagogue. And that was the first thing he said to me. He said, you don't have to convert. You can be an active member of the synagogue. We have a lot of active members who did not convert and they are just there with their spouses. And I think that if I hadn't had a desire to convert or didn't feel an attraction to the Jewish faith, then I would have said, you know what, you're right. I can take a step back on this and be part of the community, but not necessarily go through this whole process. But it was really important to me because I did feel that there was this gap in my life in terms of spirituality. And I didn't know what to expect going into it. I thought maybe this will be a really enriching experience. Maybe it won't be. But it has been really amazing. And for me, what was really important was finding a place where I felt like I could truly be myself. And I really like how Judaism embraces imperfection and takes that as part of humanity. I felt like there's so much emphasis on perfection just in life nowadays, but also through other religions. And I really love that about Judaism, where you embrace humanity and everyone accepts that. Not only that, but also finding a spiritual community that I could actively be a part of was really important. And it's opened my eyes to a lot of things. So Rabbi Josh has helped me tap into the more philanthropic side of myself. And when my grandma passed away last year, he was a really big support system for me. Um, she was in Venezuela and I was unable to even go to the funeral. So for me, that was just a really traumatizing moment in my life. And he allowed me to look at it in a different way. He said, this is clearly a loss, but there's also a lot that you can do to honor her. 
And he encouraged me to get more involved with Venezuelan refugee organizations. And that's been really important for me. It's amazing. Sort of growing up, kind of what Consuelo alluded to, as much as I really enjoyed my personal relationship as facilitated through the Catholic Church, I completely agree. There are some problematic things there. And I never pictured myself raising a religious family, even though it was something that was so personal to me because of some of those problematic things. And so I think meeting John and going through this journey, I've realized I've been able to actualize something that was so important to me, just in a slightly different way than I thought before. So that as much as it was incentivized to stay with my fiance, it really didn't end up being about that Danny, when you went to Israel once, you sent me a mezuzah. Yeah. You heard about mezuzah gate and you sent me a mezuzah and you said, you wrote a card and it was like, hopefully a mezuzah from the Holy Land will like help convince you. So it was you. It's yeah. actually on my front door right now. It is beautiful. <laughs> I'm so glad. That makes you, I, as much as there is decorating in this religion, I am here for it. So it's the mezuzahs I have. It's so cute because also his, his like extended family, when I, Somehow it became amongst them that I love decorating and one Hanukkah, they all gave me Hanukkah decorations. And so in LA where you aren't overrun by, you know, Christmas decorated houses, our apartment actually glitters with all Hanukkah colors. So I so appreciate that. And you got engaged in your sukkah, right? Uh, yes. my The second night of Sukkot last year, we got engaged because uh, that is my favorite holiday. That's amazing. And you guys are both kappas, your sisters of mine forever. And, you know, I want to say, like, welcome. Mazel tov. And I guess now we're really, really bound for life. Thanks for having us, Steph. You're stuck with us. Thanks for being guests and thanks for being my fam. Hi, this is John Tice, almost 29 years old from Fountain Valley, California, and here is my conversion story. I grew up in a belief system called religious science. Um, it's a new age, new thought offshoot of Christian science and is responsible for a lot of slogans often heard in our society like change your thinking, change your life, or everything happens for a reason, etc. And the law of attraction. Therefore, it's also responsible for stuff like the secret. I'd believed some truly damaging stuff coming out of this, and at one point I had been told by a practitioner in my church that before birth I chose to be abused by my father so that I could learn lessons in life. This, naturally, was super harmful. I was still in this belief system when I met my current partner, Dana, who is a Mizrahi Jew, and she challenged a lot of the stuff that I had internalized, especially showing that the whole change your thinking, change your life, and everything happens for a reason ideas were super ableist. And then in 2016, dual tragedies struck. My future mother-in-law passed. Then five days later, my grandfather did as well. After that, several other things happened in rapid succession, like my mother needing to be hospitalized, as well as my partner. While I had been drifting from the belief system I had grown up in, this was the final nail in the coffin, as I couldn't believe ever again that everything happens for a reason, when so much tragedy had happened. No matter how much positive thinking I did, it wouldn't have prevented any of it. So spiritually I was a bit listless, bouncing from place to place, but nothing really fit. 
I had been reading here and there a lot about Judaism so that I could understand Dana and her family's cultural background better, and everything I read I liked. I definitely fell down several Wikipedia holes, including on subjects like Jewish mourning practices, the Talmud, etc., to the point where I often had about 25 tabs open at a time. I had also met in 2016 my friend Aharon, who we came together to meet at an academic conference on the subject of Philip K. Dick. Aharon happened to be a founder of the Open Siddur Project, and seeing his posts about Jewish prayer and getting to read some of them certainly had an influence on me as well. It was about April 2018 that, upon looking at the tabs that I had had to open and the fact that I had used my tax return on the Jewish study Bible, that I realized I really need to talk to a rabbi. Five months in, the Tree of Life shooting happened, as well as much of the rise of anti-Semitism going on in our times. It was after Tree of Life that I started wearing a kippah full-time. Throughout all, I never wavered on my desire to be Jewish. And overall, I've just developed a strong love for Judaism. Last July, a few months after the class had concluded, I had my Beit Din and dipped in the mikveh. I feel so at home, and it's a joy to be Jewish. Hey there, co-host Leah Leibowitz here. Our next story begins in an unlikely place, a U.S. prison. David Ben Moshe's journey towards becoming a Jew is both extremely complicated and incredibly hopeful. He exposes some of the real injustices within the American criminal justice and class systems, as well as in the Israeli rabbinate's standards of who is a Jew. Look, there are some things in the next story that will make you feel absolutely enraged. But that's not the point. The point is that David Ben Moshe's story is a story of hope triumphing over darkness. Have a listen. Our next guest is David Ben Moshe coming to us live from Jerusalem, lucky, with one of the truly more meaningful, touching stories I've heard in a long time. David, how you doing? I'm doing well. I'm enjoying. We just got 400 more meters of space to travel in this country. <laughs> You're still under, as we record, still under quarantine, still not able to go more than 500 meters from your apartment? Correct. You were not born in Jerusalem. Tell us a little bit about your background. I was born in the States in New Haven to parents who were both immigrants and Christians. And then when I was very young, I believe two or three, they moved to Maryland. And I was raised in Maryland in a fundamentalist Christian home. What was religion like for you growing up? Did you believe any in it? Did it move you? So when I was very young, it kind of moved me. And I think a lot of that was just being into the thing that your parents are into. And then as I got older, it started moving me less and less. And there was just some really fundamental things that I couldn't get into with at least the type of Christianity that I grew up with. Very specifically, there was the idea that people who don't believe what we believe will go to hell. 
That's kind of a biggie. <laughs> yeah. Kind of like that idea in especially evangelical Christianity that kind of we have the ultimate truth. It's agree with us or suffer for eternity is something that I couldn't really ever fully accept. And so you sort of found yourself drifting away a little bit from that faith. And then as you grew from a child to a teenager and a young man, like so, 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 so many of us, Lord knows, you you know made some decisions, right, that weren't maybe the best decisions. Tell us a little bit about that period in your life. So after I graduated, I went away to college, and college had a terrible, terrible experience. And then eventually ended up supporting myself, and the way I was doing that was by selling drugs and guns, and eventually ended up in federal prison. What happens to you? What happens to your soul and your mind and your heart when you're in prison? Initially, sadness at the situation and what happened to me and anger at others. And so at some point, I assume this anger subsides and some hunger comes into the picture, and that's when you find some interesting Jewish texts? So more from anger to just pure boredom. (laughs) (laughs) It was really an accident that I found the Jewish text. Really, it was just the compound was locked down, and I was in the library for like four or five hours. And just happened to see someone reading something in a different language and was really bored and asked him some questions and talked to him for a little bit. And that was my introduction to the Jewish text. Huh. Do you remember what that first mythical text that you ever held and read was? So I don't remember the exact text. What I do remember is the Mefarshim. Tell me more. Again, the way I was raised in religion, there is one way you look at it, and that's the way it is. And the idea that you have a book of, like, Tanakh, and it's got in the bottom five or six different people giving their interpretations of what it means, and some of them disagree, and some of them will even call out another commentator (laughs) and say (laughs) their interpret, like you have, like, some of, like, Rashi's grandsons talking about, and Rashi was wrong here, and just the idea that you could have the holy text and accept that that is the truth, and then have disagreements as to what that truth means and what we should take for it, and you would put them all together was something that blew my mind as far as what religion could be and how you could see yourself as knowing the truth. I mean, that's amazing, because look, jailhouse conversion stories are are not that uncommon. We have records of them, but I think conversions to Judaism in prison are much rarer, and I've never heard of a story that begins by someone saying like, huh, you know, I was moved by the fact that, first of all, I had the commentators and the text on the same page, but not only that, the commentators arguing with other commentators. Does that discovery change you only intellectually? Like, oh, that's interesting in a way to look at the world? Or does it do something to you also spiritually and emotionally? I felt this need to grow and improve and become the best person I could. Especially if you take some of the interpretations of like the Breshit story and us being partners with Hashem and like creating the world, it kind of puts on us a responsibility to be the best us that we can be to create the best world that we can. Amen. And everything changes for you after that, right? You get out of prison early for good behavior. And I assume you continue a little bit with with the Jewish studies at the time? Actually, the first place I went to when I was released was B'nai Israel Synagogue in downtown Baltimore. Was going there the entire time I was in Baltimore and then planned on moving to go to University of Florida for a degree in physical therapy, a doctoral degree after finishing my undergrad. And what happened with that? So having a criminal record effectively means that no one ever has to treat you fairly 
ever again at any point in your life. So it's a long story, but the on one foot version is I got an acceptance letter. They then asked for some odd information. Eventually I got them on the phone and they explained to me, it's like, oh, you've been accepted into the doctoral program, but because you have a criminal record, you have to apply to the university as well. So submitted another application. They told me that I should get the answer back in about a week. Four months later, they told me that I was not eligible to apply to university with no real explanation. And so at that point, I imagine a lot of anger surfaces, a lot of frustration. What, what, what do you do then? So not so much anger, a lot of frustration just because like if they just given me an answer sooner, it's possible I could have called up a different school and gone there. But I did put some thought into what happens if they say no. And a few years earlier, I'd done a birthright trip and really felt that I wanted to end up living like in the end in Israel. Just getting off the airplane in this country is a different experience. Anyone who's never been here, as soon as they let us travel again, I highly recommend it's just you can feel like the ground and the air is different. And so when the college plan falls through, you eventually make good on that feeling and you move to Jerusalem to study in, I think, one of the greatest institutions of, of higher Jewish learning, Pardes in Jerusalem, right? Yes. What was that like? That was amazing. So I came just on a pilot trip for the summer program at Pardes. Loved the program at Pardes. Also met a very nice girl and we started dating and then came back for the year program. And so the program started in September and then in February, I got engaged to the same woman who I met during the summer program. And then the program ended on May 31st. And about three weeks before that, I put in my application for Aliyah, which then opens a whole nother story. <laughs> you finished your conversion process in America before you arrived in Israel, correct? Yes. And so here you are, a Jew through and through, and not only that, one who's also probably more learned, more practicing, more committed and passionate about Jewish life than a vast majority of Israeli Jews, especially those who define themselves as a secular. But because I am from Israel, sadly, I, I also acknowledge the realities. I can imagine that being uh, an African-American man, I take it that some people were very warm and hospitable, but I take it that a lot of other people, including some of the official bureaucracies, were more suspicious? The official bureaucracies were all very suspicious and unhelpful and wholly unwelcoming. But on the street, going to regular synagogues, standard conversations, most people in general are very welcoming. Tell us a little bit about the bureaucratic ordeal. That Are you done with it or are you still fighting it? Still fighting it. I put in my application for Aliyah in the middle of May 2018. I believe they're supposed to process applications within 45 days. I did not get an official response until January of 2019. Oh, wow. And that was already with many trips with lawyers to Misra Panim. Misra Panim being the Ministry of the Interior, the dreaded epicenter of the bureaucracy. And during that time, I also got married to my wife in Israel through the rabbinate. And then in January, they say my application is not valid because my conversion is unacceptable with no other explanations and suggesting that I apply to get citizenship through basically my marriage. 
was there ever a moment in which you said like, you know what, I'm I'm just too frustrated with this. I really want to feel like this is my home. I want to feel Israel is my home. I want to feel Judaism is, is a home I've returned to. But I, I just, I can't take all this rejection anymore. Or did your faith just strengthen your desire to settle down in that part of the world and, and be a part of the Jewish people? I want to answer that with a story from one of the questions that one of the rabbis asked me during my conversion. So while I'm sitting in front of the Beit Din, one of the rabbis, it was Rabbi Shmuel Hertzfeld from D.C., asked, he goes, you know, when you become part of the Jewish people, like there's a lot of people who won't like you, a lot of people who don't support it. You become a target for many people in the world. Like, how do you feel about joining a people that like has that? And so I looked at him and said, well, you know, I grew up African-American in America. So I, I, <laughs> I think I could kind of like visualize what that feels like. <laughs> See, now I've been playing the game on hard for a while. I'm fine. <laughs> David Ben Moshe, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time. Welcome home, brother. This has been a pleasure and a privilege. Uh, thank you. In the past few years of doing conversion episodes, we have talked to all kinds of people with all kinds of stories, but they tend to have one thing in common, which is they want to become Jews or they have become Jews or they're planning to become Jews, but you know, they started something else, move into Judaism. They're converts. We thought that this year it would be interesting to talk to someone on the other side of the study desk, a rabbi, somebody who helps oversee these conversions, who teaches people. I mean, what is it like? having dozens, even hundreds of people coming through your office all the time with all of their stories about wanting to be Jewish. That's a pretty unusual experience. And it's one that most rabbis don't have. So we called Rabbi Shira Stutman, the rabbi at Sixth and I, a Jewish cultural center in Washington, D.C. For 10 years, she's taught a year-long intro to Judaism class for people in their 20s and 30s. And she's led hundreds of them to the mikveh. They've dunked, become Jews under her supervision. And let's just say this is a woman who loves to do her work. I mean, she really digs her job. Have a listen. Thirteen years ago, Sixth and I wanted to have a social gathering, which was a Friday night service. They needed a rabbi for that service. Someone knew me. And so, you know, they just brought me in to lead the service. In my first week at Sixth and I, I was meeting with people who asked to meet with me. And this one woman named Andrea came in and she said, I want to convert to Judaism. And I said, you do? And she said, yeah. And I said, okay, I guess we'll start a conversion class. This sort of desire to sort of teach about a Judaism that is meaningful to people who were both Jews or Jewish adjacent or non-Jews sort of happened on its own. I can't tell you what it does for a rabbinate to be a rabbi who spends much of her day hanging out with, teaching and learning from people who love Judaism, want to learn more about Judaism, don't have a lot of the baggage about Judaism, and sort of take the meaningfulness and use it to make their own lives better. I really believe in the core of my being that Judaism is like, it's like a meaning-making technology. Now, there is a midrash, as you well know, that when the Torah was given at Sinai, the souls of all the Jews were there, not just the ones who were alive in that moment, but also all the Jews yet to be born, including the converts. 
And I will say that there is a solid number of converts. I don't think it's the majority, but it's a solid number of the minority who even from the first day they're sitting in my office, they already feel like Jews. The number of people who come to my office already having gotten their master's degrees in Holocaust studies. It's very, very interesting. It's, it's in terms of like these people who were at Sinai, the Holocaust is a big doorway in. Red and Frank as a child, having already traveled to Eastern Europe or all of these different ways, having already hosted their friend Seder for 10 years, despite not being Jewish having organized shivas. It, it does actually even just talking about it brings tears to my eyes and really does make me believe that that midrash is true, that these people were there. I believe that almost all of the converts that we bring forward at Six and I are people who by the time they get to the mikvah, their souls were at Sinai. But starting off at that point, it's not everyone, it's a minority. We have people who want to create one faith in their home and they are partnered with a Jew and they love Judaism. And so they decide that Judaism is going to be the faith in their home. A lot of times with the born Jewish partner for the entirety of their relationship with the non-Jewish partner, they have been able to dictate what Judaism is and is actually a problem in the conversion process. The Jewish partner is an incredible pain in the ass. I've heard everything from, uh, Rabbi, my husband refused to get out of bed for services on Saturday morning, so I actually slapped him. I'm feeling a little guilty about that. I've heard from a number of born Jews who have said straight out, if I wanted to marry someone Jewish, I would have married someone Jewish. I've heard born Jewish partners who are furious when the person who's converting wants to stop eating bacon because that affects their life as well. So the born Jewish partners, they are a stumbling block. Sometimes it's not that way. The other big problem is that for a lot of the people who grew up Jewish, Judaism is who they are. It is the air that they breathe. They don't feel like they have to actually do anything Jewish to be Jewish. But if someone's converting to Judaism, they actually do have to do something Jewish, at least for the first 10 or 15 years, I would say, right? Because they're not gonna feel Jewish just by virtue of the fact that they go in the mikvah. They're gonna feel Jewish by virtue of the fact that they keep kosher, or keep Shabbos, or give tzedakah, or study texts, like whatever it is for them. And so one big piece of learning for me has been about how to work with the Jewish partner as part of this process. There are people who are seekers, right? There are people who are just seekers and they're looking for deeper connection with God through practice. I said to the class a few months ago, I was like, I, I actually want to just call the Pope and say like, dude, we're getting some of your best people. Like, you know, I just feel like with the interfaith couples I work with and the converts, there are so many people who grew up Catholic who cannot identify with Catholicism right now. More often, by the way, because of the lack of like a liberal branch, it's really because they can't see themselves in Catholicism, but they're attracted to like ritual and liturgy and even like the language part of it. And so there's a category that's like reformed Catholics. You know, an interesting category of convert is the person who's converting as a single person, right? And the stories they tell of going out on dates with Jews, right? They actually make me want to punch someone, right? And the Jews are like, why would you want to convert? Why are you doing this? They're pushing back. Like, and, and so in order to convert, these people have to like 
walk this gauntlet, you know, of like, it's not the non-Jews. I mean, they have some issues there too, but it's really the Jews who just carry such internalized anti-Semitism. And I think like once we can sort of process that a little bit, maybe we can talk more about conversion. Part of the process of becoming Jewish is about taking on the cultural Jewish garb and understanding all the cultural stuff. Like, like for instance, the difference between saying I'm going to service and I'm going to services, right? Jews say services, Christians say service. Little things like that for, for our students are an incredibly big deal when they learn that they've been saying it wrong. And so they are like real chassids of things like unorthodox because that teaches them like Jewish lingo. When I see people are converting, what do I think? I think this is good for the Jews. It's good when people are, are sort of converting and being out loud and proud. I really do believe converts only add more depth to Judaism. If we talk about conversion in America exploding, that means there will be all these family members who now know what Jews are and who have celebrated Judaism. Like I just did this Shiva minion for a parent who passed away and the convert's whole family was on this Zoom Shiva minion. And that was not a family that had spent a lot of time with Jews before this woman married a Jewish guy, converted to Judaism and became a Jew. And there they are like knowing about Judaism. Like, that is good for the Jews. I believe in the core of my being that I have the best job in the world and I have the best rabbinic job in the world. Shira Stutman is the rabbi at 6th and I. Unsurprisingly, there is a humongously long waiting list to get into her class. Hey there, it's Lee Elligan. This next story you're about to hear is both heartbreaking and heartwarming. It comes to us from reporter Alex Wall with help from Noah Levinson, and it tells the story of one incredible woman, Vina Wynn, a Vietnamese-American suffering from a rare cancer. She completed an Orthodox conversion in time to be married under the chuppah to her fiancé, Andrew Kohler. The conversion and marriage were the end of a long journey from Nguyen's Buddhist roots, which she left behind after a Buddhist hospital chaplain told her that bad karma from a previous life had caused her cancer. Have a listen. I met Bruce Feldstein, the Jewish chaplain for Stanford University Hospital, the way I meet so many people. I was writing a profile of him. And as he told me 16 years ago, while it was the doctor's job to treat a patient's disease, it fell upon him to take care of her soul. So do you remember the first time you met V? Oh, I do. I do. Um, it was imprinted on me. So at the hospital, I make rounds, and I was called to F ground. That's the oncology unit. And I was asked to see a woman who is not Jewish, who had a Vietnamese name, so I presumed was Buddhist, and, was, and she was asking to meet with a Jewish chaplain. That's what I knew. So I walked in the room. You know, I said, hello, my name is Bruce. I'm Jewish chaplain. And what shall we talk about? The woman's name was B. Wynn. 
She was a Buddhist, or at least raised in a Buddhist family, the oldest daughter of Vietnamese immigrants who had come to California at the time of the Vietnam War. She was an active hiker and had been a varsity swimmer in high school. She had a master's degree in biomedical engineering and was in the middle of pursuing her PhD. And what she wanted to talk about was the fact that she, a 25-year-old woman who had enjoyed good health her entire life, had been diagnosed with a rare and aggressive and probably terminal form of cancer. And well, what, she was curious to know, did the Jewish tradition have to say about that? And she says, well, I've already talked to a Buddhist chaplain, but um, that really didn't do it for me. And then I asked if there were any Catholic chaplains, and they said yes, and they called over a Catholic chaplain, and she says, mm, no. The Catholic chaplain would talk about the afterlife. Oh, you know, where we're going is to a better place. But Fisa was not interested in that. You know, V's a L'chaim kind of person. She's a here and now, I want to live, and all about living kind of person. So Bruce tells V the story of Jacob, restless and full of dread, on the night before a meeting with his long-estranged brother, Esau. And in this night, there comes to him a messenger or a being, and we later find out it's an angel of God, and they wrestle all night long. And one cannot best or take advantage of the other. And dawn is about to come. And then the, the being that Jacob is wrestling with says, I have to get going. And Jacob says to the uh, angel, I'm not going to let you go unless you give me a blessing. And the angel says to him, I bless you with a new name. From now on, you shall be called Yisrael. Well, Yisra has to do with wrestling, struggling, and Ael means God. And in that moment, Jacob knows that he has been one who has wrestled with God. He is a God wrestler. V like that story. Family members confirm that this is the meeting in which V became something of a God wrestler herself. Because after this, V grew more and more interested in Judaism, to the point where she decided, even as she was in and out of the hospital constantly, fighting for her life, she would convert to Judaism. This surprised a lot of people close to her, but perhaps no one more than her Jewish boyfriend, Andrew. Yeah, I grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee. My father was the first full-time head of the Knoxville Jewish Federation. Andrew Kohler had first met V years earlier. They'd been dating for about two when she received her diagnosis. V had told Andrew up front that conversion was never going to happen. But with her illness came a search for something that would help her face a scary and uncertain future. And V wasn't one to do anything halfway. Yeah, I thought either starting conservative or reform would be easier because we could sit next to each other. I could teach her the prayers. But she insisted or wanted to go to an Orthodox synagogue. And she didn't really know where to look, so she looked on Yelp. As, as one does. As one does. <laughs> it's interesting that of all the paths we could have chosen, she really picked the hardest one. 
Undergoing an Orthodox conversion isn't just studying. It's being Shomer Shabbat, keeping kosher. So on top of going in and out of the hospital almost constantly, she was also changing literally every aspect of her life. Rabbi Shlomo Zarchi of San Francisco's Hevra Tehillim, you know, the Orthodox synagogue with the highest Yelp reviews, said she was one of the most devoted students he had ever had. She took copious notes and she would ask questions. And um, she was a very, very earnest person. She made, she made pretty clear to me early on that, she, you know, she knew what she wanted and she wanted to join the Jewish people. And she was a very, very motivated student to do a lot of studying on her own. That's the quality about V that I kept hearing again and again, her fierce determination. Andrew called her a warrior. After most of the muscle in her left leg was removed and part of her lungs had been taken out, she climbed Half Dome in Yosemite. Half Dome. I mean, look it up. The summit is almost 9,000 feet. That was 2013. And she did it to the point where... If you didn't know, nobody would have guessed that this girl that they were hiking on a trail with was already terminal. She was highly competitive, too, especially in board games. Later, when she needed a tracheostomy, making it so that she could only speak with great difficulty, she spent hours recording herself, taunting her opponents, namely Andrew, so she could play them back whenever she was winning. Hello, bizarre. Hello, bizarre. It's so salty in this room. On days she missed class, she would call Rabbi Zarki from the hospital to ask what they had covered. This went on for years. He told me that he wondered at times why she would put herself through something so difficult when her life was so difficult already. But Bruce knew why. In the intervening years, they had spent a lot of time together as her hospitalizations became more frequent and their conversations more urgent. Her biggest fear was she wasn't going to be able to convert. Why? Because she wanted to die as a Jew. When she told me that she wanted to die as a Jew and I could see the prognosis that she had in the hospital. I said, can I call your, your uh, rabbi? Because we need to get this conversion moved up for you. Bruce got on the phone with Rabbi Zarhi, and they planned an emergency Beit Dean with one Orthodox rabbi hopping on a flight from L.A. to San Francisco to oversee the proceedings. The conversion was so last minute that V hadn't even had time to let her family know. She texted her sister Ann for a ride. Ann was just getting out of a backpacking trip where she had no cell service. I was trying to figure out when that message was sent. And then I called her right away. I'm just like, I just got out of the forest. When is this happening? Did I miss it? And she said, uh, no, it's happening in two hours. Ann raced home and picked up V. And meanwhile, she had no idea what to expect. I knew it was a conversion, but I didn't know... I had no context of what happens during a mikvah. When she said conversion, I thought that, you know, like, I thought that it might be, you know, what you see in the movies for when um, someone has their bar mitzvah, right? You know, you're reading from the Torah, you have a great party. I was like, okay, like, I'll just show up. Both V and the rabbis were worried about what her mental capacity would be that day. 
because with the heavy dose of meds that she was on, she had days when she was pretty out of it. Rabbi Zarki was clear that the Beit Dean would not lower their standards for V, but at the same time, not passing her would have been devastating. When V was taking a shower, she told me that she was very, very nervous and she was scared that um, she wouldn't do well and that she would. She wasn't worried about her health at all. She was more worried about making sure that things went well so that she could pass the oral exam and be Jewish at the end. Um, and so uh, she did great. Her responses were crisp. They were on point in a way that I had not seen even in the previous six months, eight months leading up to it. Even though we had discussed it and I knew at some point she knew it, I wasn't sure what was going on at that moment. And um, the relief that we as a group felt that somehow she had this expansiveness at that moment and, and, and was able to experience it fully and that she was present emotionally, spiritually, psychologically. But if everyone was nervous about the oral exam, it was nothing compared to the stress of getting V through the mikvah. She relied on oxygen to breathe by this point, which they gave her between each dunk, while the rabbi's wife, Khani, barefoot and ready to dive in, held on to her from the side. V took the Hebrew name Vered Chaya, Living Rose. She was just sitting there shivering, um, and she was so happy just sitting there naked, trying to catch her breath, very, very happy. Like you could not take the smile off of her face for the rest of the day. And one of the other um, women from the synagogue, Judy, she made a comment of, look at V, she is um, radiating. Don't you see that she's radiating? And I was just like, yeah, she really is. hospitalized again just days after the conversion and needed to undergo a tracheostomy to continue breathing. If this had happened any earlier, it would have been impossible for her to submerge fully in the mikvah, meaning she wouldn't have been able to convert. He believed that this proved that God wanted her to be Jewish. And then Andrew tells me she's starting to uh, cough up blood. This is called hemoptysis. Bruce, a former ER doctor himself knew what this meant. While it could be something more minor, it might also mean that at any moment, she could die. And I said, um, Andrew, V's told me two things that she wants. She wants to die as a Jew, and she wants to be married. This was at 3.15 in the afternoon on Monday. He calls me, he says, we'd like to have the wedding tomorrow. So the, the next morning I, I come to the hospital, very thankful that she made it through the night. I was wearing nicer than normal clothes, and she was awake. She said, oh, you look nice. What's the occasion? She was too drugged to remember, um, and I told her the plan, and I asked, you know, do you want me to... You know, if you, if you don't feel comfortable, if you don't want to, we can schedule it for another day. We can do something different. And 
No, she, she agreed. She's now sitting in the chair next to her bed, wearing a beautiful white, you know, her gown was dressed, the nurses had her all dressed up. She's sitting next to uh, Andrew and I'm sitting across from them. And we just did a uh, civil language. Do you, V, take Andrew to be your lawfully wedded husband um, until death do you part? You know, they don't, we don't say that in Judaism, but that's how it was in the, the, the civil language. And those words are so poignant in that moment. They look at each other. Oh, the love, the depth of meaning, the joy in that moment was indescribable. But of course, V still dreamed of her Jewish wedding at Hever Tehillim with Rabbi Zarchi officiating. And she got what she wanted a few months later on October 7th, 2018. The photos do not show anything remotely resembling a dying woman. If you didn't see the oxygen tanks, you'd never know that V was sick. She was able to walk down the aisle, though she needed to sit down by the time she reached the chuppah. Given that V was only able to speak with great difficulty, she delivered her vows to Andrew the same way she delivered her taunts, pre-recorded at home, using a ventilator as breath. Andrew, I am humbled that you have chosen me as your beloved. We have traveled through many valleys and we have experienced many peaks. No matter what happens next, my life has been fulfilled. And every day beyond today is a gift. I will love you forever. V. Vered Chaya Win Kohler died on February 5th, 2019, almost exactly four months after the wedding. She was 33. I was invited by Andrew to attend one of the Shiva minions at her parents' house after I had written an article about their wedding. And though the room was mostly filled with Jewish mourners from Andrew and V's synagogue, I was surprised to hear her siblings reading the mourners' Kaddish more or less fluently. It was clear they had already said it a few times before. Did V specifically ask you to mourn her in a Jewish way? She did not. But Ahn knew that her sister wanted to have a Jewish family and never got that chance. So she tried to at least mourn her in the way a Jewish family would. Even though losing her sister in this way made Ahn lose her own faith entirely, she and her brother Fong both showed up at Hever Tehillim every Saturday for a month to say Kaddish for their sister. V had been very close with her mother, Kim Van Tran, who admitted to me that she was a little disappointed at first when V chose to convert, as she had been the most devout Buddhist of the three children. When she was young, very young, about like eight years old or something like that, and she just came to me and she said that, Mayor, 
um, could you teach me a prayer in Vietnamese uh, for Buddhism prayer? And I taught her and then uh, she kept saying that until that uh, she grew up and during her college time and she said that, did you know that um, when I was young that until now, every night that I went to bed, I always prayed that prayer, Vietnamese prayer. Her disappointment didn't last long. Your job as a parent, she told me, is to allow your kids to become their own people. You know, if that's what makes you happy, then um, I'm all for it. Seeing her finding the faith during those struggling and hard times like that, that's just really helped me also that at least that um, she feel peaceful when she's really having, you know, physical as well as emotional um, hardship then, yeah. Dying so young, V spoke to Andrew quite a bit about her concern that she wasn't leaving any kind of legacy. But she did. When Rabbi Zarki called the rabbi from L.A., who flew in to oversee her conversion, to tell him she had died, he burst into tears. V struggling to make it up the steps at Hebra Tehillim with her oxygen tanks is a sight shul members will never forget. I kid you not, it would take her 10 minutes to walk 15 feet. Every breath was, was laborious. I would tell her that, you know, it reminded me of the famous story in the Talmud about this uh, sage Hillel who had this tremendous desire to study Torah, but uh, he couldn't afford the entry fee to go into the study hall. There was, at that time, there was a, it was later abolished, but at that, there was a point where you had, there was a fee to enter the study hall. So the sage Hillel climbs to the roof and presses his ear against the glass to hear the lessons that the rabbis are giving inside. That night it snows, and Hillel, still on the roof, gets buried underneath it. The next morning, the rabbis and the students come in and they see that it's it's very dark. This the, the light's not coming in. They, someone they look up and they see there's a figure, and they they rush up to the roof and they they see someone's buried under the snow, and he's frozen. It's Shabbat morning, and even though halacha would normally forbid it, they light a fire to save the man's life. They wake up and they realize that his determination to come study Torah at, the, at, the, at risk of life and limb. And as a result, that was the impetus that they made a declaration that no longer will there be a guard standing at the door. Anybody who wants to come study can come in. And they removed the, the entry fee to go into the study hall. That was V. She so badly wanted to become something that many of us take for granted. A Jew. That her effort inspired nearly every single person she met. She has imprinted herself upon me. It's like right up there with the Shema. You know, we say, "Al Livavecha." May these words be written upon our heart, not in our heart, upon our heart. We certainly live on in the the memory of others and the story of others. And it's through this process of uh, inscribing and printing ourselves through our lives upon each other. So, I am privileged to know her and to be uh, changed by and with her. That piece was reported and written by Alex Wall and produced by Noah Levinson. 
It was also funded by a good friend of the podcast, and I want to say something about that. We were able to make that piece because of an incredibly generous donation from Jonathan Sklar and the Sklar Family Fund. Jonathan is a devoted listener to Unorthodox who came to us over a year ago and said, I want to give you some money, but I want you to do something really special with it. Can you give me some ideas of how you would spend my money? And we said, yeah, uh, sure, Jonathan, we have a couple really cool segments we want to make. And one of them is about this woman in the Bay Area. We've heard about her. Her name is V. And we want to get her story. But we need a little money to get us started. And Jonathan said to us, I'm in. Jonathan Sklar's generosity allowed us to bring you that remarkable story. And if you would like to help us make more audio like that, please go donate at bit.ly slash unorthodoxgiving. That's bit.ly slash unorthodoxgiving. If you have any particular ideas for stories we should get, ways to spend your money getting them, you can email producer Josh Cross. That's cross with a K at jcross at tabletmag.com. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call in your comments at 914-570-4869. The conversion episode always brings out the best in our commenters. 914-570-4869. We often come to you live to book us or advertise with us. Email producer Josh Cross at jcross, that's cross with a K, at tabletmag.com. We could do some Zoom events if you like. Follow us on Instagram at Unorthodox Podcast or on Twitter at Unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Star Fredman Ader. Our assistant editor is Robert Scaramuccia. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Some of the music in the piece about V is from Blue Dot Sessions. Our mailbox theme, When You Hear It, is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision by Shira Stutman, David Kalb, Josh Stanton, and all the rabbis helping people choose Judaism. We come to you from our basements, man caves, and woman caves, but we sure miss being in Argo Studios. Hey guys, go subscribe to Unorthodox now. Hello, friends. <laughs>